I fear not the dark itself, but what may lurk within it. Welcome to Lurk, bringing you creepy, strange, and bone-chilling stories with your host, Jamie Jackson. Welcome to this week's episode. This week we are hitting the trail once again. If you're new or you haven't caught up with episodes yet, we feature stories about ghosts, monsters, aliens, and anything creepy from along the Appalachian National Scenic Trail. Or the Appalachian National Scenic Trail. We've already done two episodes featuring stories from the Haunted Trail. Episode 57, we started in Georgia. And in episode 58, we continued north into North Carolina. So give those a listen if you haven't already. As I've explained before, the Appalachian National Scenic Trail, or Appalachian Trail, or simply just the AT, is 2,194.3 miles in length and goes through 14 different states. Georgia, North Carolina, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine. Is there anybody out there who had to sing that song and chorus in elementary school? You know, the nifty 50 United States, the 13 original colonies. I'm not going to sing it. You know, but you had to sing the name Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, California, Colorado, Connecticut. Anyway, sorry. I really shouldn't sing. Um, Anyway, back to the trail. There are an estimated 3 million plus visitors to the AT each year. Some of those are day hikers. Some are overnight backpackers. And some of them are through hikers or people who hike the entire length of the AT all in one shot. Typically, that takes about six months to do. Most of them travel from Georgia to Maine, so a northbound through hike. Some travel southbound from Maine to Georgia. Some do what's called a flip-flop, where they start in Harper's Ferry or some other area around the middle of the trail, and they hike south. Then they go back to Harper's Ferry and they hike north, or vice versa. Some people do... Yo-yo hikes, where they hike northbound one way, get to the end, turn around, and hike southbound and head back the other way. Since most of the people through hike by heading north, that's how I've structured these stories here. We're going to be heading northbound on the Appalachian Trail. So we've covered Georgia first, then we headed north into North Carolina, and now we're going to be continuing into North Carolina and Tennessee. The trail gets to a point here where it meanders back and forth, crossing into North Carolina, then moving back over to Tennessee, back and forth, until eventually it ends up in Tennessee, and then on into Virginia. Our first story is about a thing called the White Screamer, a creature that roams the woods of North Carolina and Tennessee. Sometimes it's called the White Thing, or Thang, I don't know, whichever. This thing is sometimes thought to be a creature, like a cryptid, and other times it's believed to be more like an apparition or a banshee. 
If you're unfamiliar with what a banshee is, it's Irish in origin and is said to be a female spirit that warns of the death of a family member by wailing, crying, shrieking, or keening. As far as a description, it's white, in case you couldn't tell by the name White Screamer. Also, it screams. Bet you didn't see that coming. Anyway, it has been described as a white, misty form that wails, cries, and screams. It's tall, with stringy white hair, hooves, and claws. Its arms are long, and the creature has a long stride when it walks. It also is supposed to have a long face and a massive mouth. One eyewitness account said that the screamer had glowing red eyes that were about the same height as a basketball hoop. There are also reports that the area where the screamer appears has the grass burned away. The one thing that all accounts share in common is that the white thing screams. Sometimes it's a wail, sometimes it's more like a screaming woman in distress, but there's always a scream. And if you're not certain, you're not familiar with basketball, and don't apologize if you're not, I'm not a fan. My daughter did play. I've watched her play. I'm a fan of her. Fan of kids' teams playing. Middle school, high school. I can watch college basketball, but I don't even attempt professional basketball. It's just not my thing. Anyway, a basketball hoop regulation height is 10 feet. So when they say that the eyes were about the height of a basketball hoop, I'm going to assume that they mean typical regulation height basketball hoop of 10 feet. That's pretty tall. So as I said, the, the one thing that all the accounts have in common is that it screams. In the 1920s, there was a man who built a house for his wife and seven children. Once they moved in, they were plagued every night by something screaming and wailing. The man, growing tired of the nightly crying, grabbed his gun and went out to hunt the creature making the noise and uh, planned on killing it. Once he climbed the hill near his home, he heard the screams of his wife and kids down at the cabin. He raced back to his home to see what was happening, and he found his family dead. Their bodies had been literally ripped apart by some kind of monster. There are a few theories about what the screamer might be. Some say it's a banshee, wailing about impending death. Others say it's an apparition wandering the woods, and still others think that it's some type of escaped exotic creature. Back in the late 1850s, there was a traveling circus passing through Tennessee on its way to its next destination. At some point in North Carolina or Tennessee, the train derailed and several of the circus animals escaped. The circus employees were able to track down and capture all the escapees except two, the wild men of Borneo. Not long after the train derailment and escape, people and livestock began to disappear in the area. I'm assuming that if these escapees from the circus train are called the wild men of Borneo. I'm going to assume that they are people, actual men. I don't know, maybe they're some type of primate. I'm not really sure, but 
it seems like a little bit of a stretch that there is a clan of Borneo wild men roaming the woods. Screaming. I don't know. It's hard to say exactly what the white screamer could be, but whatever it is, it's terrifying. If you hear the wails or screaming while you're asleep in your tent or hammock, you might want to watch your back. Next, we're going to be heading to Bryson City, North Carolina. Bryson City is a small town nestled in the mountains of North Carolina next to the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. Native Americans have lived and hunted in the area for thousands of years. One of the Cherokee's oldest settlements was located in the area of Bryson City before being burned to the ground by American soldiers in 1776. The town of Bryson City began as the Swain County seat in the 1870s, before officially being named Bryson City in 1889. With such a long history, it's no wonder that Bryson City has its fair share of haunts. One of the haunted locations in Bryson City is the Calhoun House. The Calhoun House was built in the early 1900s and was operated as a boarding house. Some even say that the boarders had a hand in the construction. The house operated under a couple of different owners until eventually being purchased by Granville Calhoun. Calhoun turned the house into a hotel and it was operated by the Calhoun family until 1967. Mr. Calhoun himself lived to the ripe old age of 104. During the time that the Fontana Dam was being built, and you'll remember the Fontana Dam was featured in episode 58, I think it was, of the Haunted Trail when we started the North Carolina series. Anyway, during the time that the dam was being built, planning meetings were held at the hotel, and during the construction, many found lodging at the hotel. It's said that in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, the Calhoun Hotel was the only place whites, blacks, and Cherokees worked together peacefully and profitably without prejudice. During the time that Granville Calhoun operated the hotel himself, he would send his young son Seymour to let the guests know when dinner was ready. Young Seymour would open the doors of the guest rooms to announce that dinner was about to be served. As with many old historic homes that have been witness to a lot of life being lived, the Calhoun house seems to have absorbed the energy of little Seymour Calhoun. Today, right around dinner time, doors sometimes burst open as though the spirit of little Seymour is still performing his evening chore of summoning guests to dinner. The other haunted location in Bryson City is the Frymont Inn. Frymont Inn was constructed in 1923 by timber baron Amos Fry and his wife Lillian. Together they ran the inn until Amos died in 1935. Lillian continued to run the inn with help from her daughter and son-in-law. When Lillian passed away in 1957, the inn sat empty for many years. During that time, the area children would sneak inside to run up and down the upstairs hallway as the hall was reputed to be haunted. The inn went through two more owners, the last of which still runs the Frymont Inn today. There have been a few mentions of ghostly activity. Back in 1947, 
an engineer working on the Fontana Dam project, was sleeping in room 216, when he was suddenly woken from a deep sleep. There, at the foot of the bed, stood Amos Fry, who had been dead for 12 years. The man woke his wife, and they quickly checked out of the inn. But Amos Fry's ghost isn't the only one roaming the inn. The ghost of a young lady is also said to haunt the halls. This ghost is said to be Eugenia, who was Amos Fry's niece. She was known as a sad artist and was often found crying by the staff. Today, her personal books fall to the floor and her bedroom door slams. Moving northward, when you hike the Appalachian Trail, you'll become familiar with the shelters that are located throughout. These shelters are rustic, typically only have a roof and three sides, with one side open to the weather. They offer a place for overnight backpackers to sleep. Along the trail, there is a shelter called Molly's Ridge Shelter, located on the Tennessee side of the line. Molly's Ridge Shelter lies in an open grassy area with a few sparse trees around it. It's about 10 miles north of Fontana Dam and at about 4,800 feet of elevation. You can see the lights of Gatlinburg in the distance. It's said that the ridge and shelter were named after a Cherokee girl named Molly. I'm not really sure how Molly is a Cherokee name, but that's the stories that we're going to go with it. Molly was said to be in love with a Cherokee warrior named White Eagle. During a hunting trip, White Eagle failed to return. Molly couldn't bear to live without her love, White Eagle, so she set out to find him. She searched all over the ridge, and while she was searching, a blizzard blew in and covered everything in snow. Molly was eventually found at a crossroad of trails, frozen to death. No one knows what the fate of White Eagle was. Now, when you're staying at the shelter, you might see the hazy shadow of Molly searching the area for her lost love. If you do happen to see her, be sure you invite her into the shelter. She haunts those who do not offer her help. At this point, I'm going to throw in here that we covered... Um, in episode four, we covered the missing 411 case of Dennis Martin, who was a seven-year-old boy who went missing while backpacking with his father, grandfather, and brother. He went missing just north of Molly's Ridge Shelter in Spence Field. So if you haven't checked that episode out, uh, be sure to check that out. So we're going to continue north now to Cade's Cove. Cade's Cove actually is also featured in the Dennis Martin story, there was a strange sighting associated with Dennis Martin's case. But I'm not going to give you details because I want you to go listen to the episode if you haven't already. So Cade's Cove is located in an isolated valley that was once the home of Cherokee and settlers long before the National Park was formed. The Cherokee established a settlement in Cade's Cove in, seven, in the 1790s, and one of their two main trails crossed through the area. In 1819, the Treaty of Calhoun ended the Cherokees' claims to the land in the Smokies, and the settlement was abandoned. The Cherokee remained in that area of the forest, however, and occasionally attacked settlers until 1838 and the Trail of Tears. If you don't know, that's when the Cherokee were marched out west to reservations. During the Civil War, 
the Confederates began raiding the settlement, stealing livestock and killing Union supporters. The last resident left Cades Cove in 1937. Based on its history, it isn't surprising to find that Cades Cove is a ghost town in every sense of the term. Though long abandoned, it still has a community of ghosts. People have claimed to see an entire community of ghosts working the land and going about their daily lives. The Baptist Church still sports a congregation that loves to sing. There's also a ghost cabin in Cades Cove. A former resident was spending some time in the old town when she spied the roof of a cabin she didn't remember from when she lived there. When she walked over to investigate, the cabin disappeared. There were two hikers who set up camp near Cades Cove. They hung their hammocks and settled in for the night. It was pitch black outside, of course, because there's no electricity in the mountains on the trail. Suddenly, two balls of light materialized inside the hammock cover. They lingered for a few seconds before disappearing. The hikers looked for anyone around, but there was no one there. Cades Cove also had some paranormal strangeness going on when people still lived in the settlement. There's an old wives' tale that says if you're born during a storm, you're fated to die during one. One couple in the settlement, Mavis and Basil, lived in Cades Cove. Mavis was deathly afraid of lightning because she was born during a storm and she feared the old wives' tale would come true. Mavis did die, but she actually ended up dying from illness and not the prophesied lightning strike. Before her death, she made her husband Basil promise her that he would keep the quilts she had sewn by hand in the family and that he would never put one of her quilts on a metal bed frame. He, of course, made the promise to his dying wife. Eventually, Basil remarried, and his new wife wanted a new and bigger bed. Because what wife wants to use the bed of your husband's late wife or ex-wife? Husbands, note to yourself, if you get a new wife, get her a new bed. Anyway, so Basil's new wife wants a new bed. So they go out and they buy a new bed, and it's a new metal bed frame and a new mattress. And on that new bed, you know what she did? She put one of Mavis's handmade quilts on it. That night, the new wife woke in the middle of the night to see Mavis's ghost at the foot of the bed, swearing up a storm. The new wife woke Basil up, but he didn't hear or see a thing. After reassuring his wife and getting her calmed down, they went back to sleep. Suddenly, there was a great popping noise, a blinding flash of light, and the smell of something burning. The new wife was knocked clean out of the bed and ran for help, but help was useless at that point for Basil. He was burned to a crisp, lying in bed under Mavis's handmade quilt he had promised never to put on a metal bed frame. The odd thing was, there was no threat of a storm, no storm clouds, and just a clear and starry sky. Better keep those deathbed promises, that's all I'm saying. Continuing northward, you'll pass by No Business Knob Shelter that some claim has an eerie, creepy, someone-is-watching-me feeling, 
whether that's because there's some yet unknown tale associated with the area to explain the feeling, or just that the shelter's block construction makes it look dismal, is unknown. Past the shelter, the Appalachian Trail crosses the Nolichucky River, near the western end of the Nolichucky Gorge, at a place known as Unaka Springs. I like to say Nolichucky. I just like it. In this area is a large boulder known as Moaning Rock. It's said that some time ago, hunters came upon the scene of a murder, with the murdered man lying there on the boulder. The man was a stranger to everyone in the area. And now, of course, the boulder is cursed. If anyone stands on or simply touches the rock, it moans as if under a heavy burden. So maybe think twice before you opt to take a rest on one of the boulders near the Nolichucky River crossing. And that makes me think of the mention of the man-eating rock on Glastonbury Mountain in episode 12 about the Bennington Triangle. Curious. Just had a thought. I wonder if there's something about rocks. I think there's an Icelandic legend about rock people. Hmm. Gonna have to look into that. So, back to the trail. <laughs> Sorry. Once you cross the Nolichucky River... Again, I really like saying Nolichucky. The Nolichucky. Nolichucky River. Rolling. Rolling. Once you cross the river, you'll be in the area of the town of Irwin, Tennessee. Irwin is a small town located in Unicoi County. According to the 2010 census, the population was 6,097. What's odd about Irwin is that it has the distinction of being the only town to publicly lynch a pachyderm. That's right. They lynched an elephant. In September of 1916, in a nearby town, Sparks' world-famous shows, a traveling circus, was parading the elephants through town. Mary, the oldest of the elephants in the group, was being ridden by Walter Eldridge. Eldridge was a new hire. Some reports say he was hired the day before. Some reports say a few days before. Either way, he had zero elephant experience being a 36-year-old Virginia mountaineer. If you're not sure, elephants aren't typically found roaming the mountains of Virginia. So Mary, a five-ton Asian elephant, is walking along with her other, el with her other elephant friends, with Eldridge riding on her, seated just behind her head, when she reaches for a watermelon lying on the ground. Eldridge taps her with his stick to keep her walking, and Mary basically flips the hell out. According to a local newspaper account, the elephant, quote, suddenly collided its trunk vice-like about his body, lifted him ten feet in the air, then dashed him with fury to the ground. Before Eldred has a chance to reach his feet, the elephant had him pinioned to the ground and with full force of her beastly fury is said to have sunk her giant tusks entirely through his body. The animal then trampled the dying form of Eldridge as if seeking a murderous triumph, then with a swing of her massive foot, hurled his body into the crowd. There are some issues with this account, or at least one glaring issue. Female Asian elephants do not have tusks, so the whole impaling part is really not accurate and probably is a little bit of um, 
exaggeration on the part of the media in order to embellish and make the story more sensational. I know that's shocking that the media would do such a thing. So basically, Mary grabs her trainer with her trunk, flings him to the ground, probably stomps him, stomps him to the ground, and then basically kicks him into the crowd with everybody else. Just kicks him, kicks him out of her way. And later that evening, Mary actually performed in the circus without any issue. But, pe- but the people and other towns the circus was scheduled to stop at refused to allow them to stop unless Mary was not there. So they sentenced Mary to hang. Because Irwin had the largest rail yard in the area, Mary was taken there the next day. With a heavy chain and a one-ton crane, she was lynched. A veterinarian examined her body afterwards, and it was found that she had a decaying tooth in the area where Eldridge had been poking her. So basically, he was hurting her. He didn't realize it. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. He didn't really have any experience and very little training. He basically was hired and plopped on top of an elephant. Now people claim they sometimes hear sounds of a heavy animal moving through the trees and even hear the occasional trumpeting of an elephant. Others claim to actually see the image of an elephant roaming the woods. That's going to do it for this episode. We still have some stories from the Tennessee area of the trail for next time before heading into the state of Virginia, so stay tuned. I'm also working on finishing up some research on an alien abduction case that may end up being a two-parter. If you have any suggestions for show topics, or if you have a story of your own you'd like to share, drop us a line at lurkpodcast at yahoo.com. You can also send us a message through any of our social media platforms. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Episodes can be found on your favorite podcast platform or at lurkpodcast.com, where you can find all of our episodes along with links to our social media accounts. You can also find us on our YouTube channel. Don't forget, the Whitehall New York Sasquatch Festival is coming up next month on September 24th, so stop by if you're in the area. And if you have a moment, please consider giving us a five-star review to help boost the show. And until next time, (laughs) keep lurking. Mm